The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, it's everyone's best friend, M4. Nathan Spitz. What's crack-a-lackin'? Your bosom buddy, M4, Zach Fleischacker, is here. Happy to be here. Drinking from the teats of knowledge. Your your boon companion, M3, Rick Gardner, has arrived. (laughs) Yo. And your sweet cheese and mine, M2, Chirayu Shukla, has a microphone, too. How's it going? (laughs) Chirayu. Yeah, I hear you're uh, putting on an event. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so I started a philanthropy event, and it's through the Flox Learning Community over here, and it's a tennis philanthropy event. So how it's going to work is there's a week in October, October 7th to the 9th. It's going to be a three-day event. There's going to be a tennis tournament for people who want to compete and but also have tennis classes for people who don't know how to play. Or people who know how to play will also have classes for them, just teaching them how to do strategies, drills, things like that. So it's supposed to be for all levels of play, anyone 18 and older. And you don't even need your own racket. We'll have rackets for you if you're a beginner. And anyone who has the physical ability to hold a racket and hit a ball should show up. And I think it's for a really good cause. We're donating to the Stoppelmore Adams Stroke Education and Research Fund which supports stroke research being done at the hospitals over here and funds stroke clinicians throughout the hospitals here. So Where can people sign up? So we have a website. It's just groundstrokesforstrokes.com, and there's flyers all throughout Murph. You can even look us up on Google, and the Carver College of Medicine store also has an event page for us, so you can just look us up. It's called Ground Strokes for Strokes. Nice. Can I ask, have you been chalking around Coralville? I have not. No, okay. There must be a competitor. I just like on a run saw like tennis lessons call this number. I think okay. tennis, le- I don't think it's a long okay. term. Well, I, didn't I didn't know I, if we're getting creative in our advertising or not. But It's like going back to the undergrad days. Yeah. Chalk on campus. I took one tennis lesson, then I got hit by a car. So Wait, Wait at, at the tennis lesson? Right, or? right after my, t- on the way home on my bicycle. So and you're coming to the event then, right? I am traumatized. I can't. Wear a helmet. <laughs> so maybe this is a good like hand-eye court. Well, I yeah. guess hand-eye coordination getting hit it's by a cars. Redemption. Yeah. Experiential like processing of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. Listeners, though, short quotes. If you if you think that's all of the people in that are here today, you that you couldn't be more wrong. Joining us in the form of ones and zeros. From the Department of Occupational and Environmental Health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Professor Peter Thorne, welcome to the Short Code Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I, I asked you to be on the show today because I know that among your research interests are the health impacts of climate change. I sense a growing acceptance slash fears about climate change, and it's become clearer to many people that we residents of planet Earth faith, face a long period of difficulty. And you came to my attention when I read about a project you're part of entitled Illuminating the Nexus Between Climate Change and Public Health. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. First of all, you know, the, the recognition of climate change, it's sort of like gravity. Yeah. You know, wh- whether you believe it or not, it, it's, it's here and it affects us a lot. So I think as we are moving along here with disaster after disaster and recognizing the impacts more and more, I think the attention is turning to mitigation and adaptation. With regard to the health effects, that's where we're trying to understand what the future holds for us and to prepare medical practitioners and public health practitioners for those health impacts and and hopefully prevent many of them or as many as we can. So that's what the the nexus is, and it's really a collaboratory to bring folks together from a variety of different disciplines to tackle this problem because we recognize no single discipline is prepared to deal with this grand challenge of the 21st century. 
Yeah, so I wanted to th- th- I wanted to talk about that as it relates to the future of clinical medicine and what doctors should be uh, thinking about. And when we spoke earlier this week, you mentioned something I hadn't really thought about, which is the sustainability of the medical profession. You want to tell us some something about that? Sure. The the mitigation part of climate change is trying to reduce the release of greenhouse gases that are driving the climate change. And so these are things that use heavily use energy and end up producing carbon carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, sulfur hexafluoride, hydrofluorocarbons and such. And and hospitals and and medical systems in general tend to have very high degree of waste either through use of a lot of single-use plastics that aren't necessary all the time or could be reused and a lot of materials that that just come into the system and and go straight to the landfill and that has a significant burden so there there are a lot of folks who are starting to look at hospital systems and say how can we make this greener what can we do to reduce the energy and without compromising sanitation and and infectious disease control of course yeah and i imagine even just running a hospital um you know, takes a lot of takes a lot of energy. Even if you could em- eliminate the use of single-use plastics and things like that, I mean, you've still got a lot of energy use in a in a hospital, whether it's air conditioning. And we're we're fortunate in Iowa and in, at the University of Iowa that a large proportion of our uh, electricity generation is coming from wind and solar, so renewable energy sources, and a diminishing amount is coming from coal-fired power plants. The other thing is that the University of Iowa runs a uh, a system that delivers hot water and chilled water for heating and air conditioning. And over the years, the university's made a strong commitment to switch this from coal to renewable products like switchgrass and miscanthus, which are two annual plants that are used to supplement now and hopefully replace coal. We've also used oat hulls from, from Cedar Rapids for quite a few years, and they've also burned some wood from forests that had to be taken down because of disease. Uh, what, what do you M4s who have, and, and M3s who have been in, um, done a lot of clinical work? Has anything occurred to you as being particularly wasteful in, in, in medicine? Oh, and you think anybody who goes through a surgical rotation, well, I was immediately shocked, you know, the first time scrubbing in to watch garbage bag after garbage bag after garbage bag be taken out of one operating room and i think like regardless of like the length of time of procedure and all like the draping and we talked about sterilization all of the surgical instruments after they're sterilized are put into like plastic packages the drapes on the patients the gowns of the team members the it's kind of mind-boggling i mean obviously like sanitation being I don't know, I guess it's hard to kind of weigh in my head the what is negotiable as far as kind of like single-use plastics or reusable drapes or not and how that interfaces with patient safety. Because you do see kind of also the after effects of surgical site infections and whatnot, and I don't really know can't you don't how want, to you like wish that on that. anybody <laughs> yeah correct yeah it used to be in the old days you know like syringes were made of like stainless steel and you reused them and and then of course you know the whole entire planet moved towards you know single-use stuff mm-hmm. um, i know i know there are drapes and like certain claws that they're working on reusing i don't know zach if you i mean know. i think in the past you know in, in the olden times all the drapes were reusable they just washed them i feel like a few of the the older surgeons very older surgeons still insist on reusable drapes, but it's very uncommon. I don't know. I mean, I think that brings up another another point where how much energy does it take to wash and sterilize a reusable drape versus, you know, of course, the environmental impact of throwing all these things out. It's, it's a pretty complicated question, especially when yeah. patient well, safety it, comes and in. And that depends on what the source of the energy is. So if the energy for say heating water for wash is coming from renewables then it it, it tips in that favor because the, all those plastics are coming from fossil fuels and fossil fuel extraction is and burning is what's driving the largest proportion of our climate change the other thing that i always hear about is is drapes that are used before a surgical procedure starts just to cover instruments that have been sterilized and then gets pulled off before anybody it contacts anybody or there's any incisions made and th- those are not 
at that point, contaminated waste. Something you just mentioned, I guess this is not necessarily directly related to my experience in medical school, but speaking of like, for example, like California just passing new legislation that they're going to ban like the new production of like fossil fuel burning car engines and whatnot. And I guess this isn't like quite related to medicine and I don't know exactly where I was going with this, but I'm just thinking of like our state, for example, like will other states like follow suit in this kind of like new like legislative efforts. And I don't know if you have like experience in historically California and Massachusetts lead the nation in these sorts of climate change adaptations and and mitigation efforts. And so California is about 10% of the population and about 18% of the car market in the U.S. And so what happens in California really drives the industry to a large extent because the major manufacturers don't want to market a different car for Iowa than they do for California. So it's incredibly impactful. The other thing is that the e-vehicle transition is happening globally, and there's a skyrocketing number of e-vehicles being produced around the world. And so that market penetration we're going to see in the U.S. One of the limitations has been that the U.S. has about 52,000 charging stations, but with recent action that was signed by President Biden, there's going to add another 150,000. So we'll be above 200,000 charging stations, which really will mean that almost anybody can go anywhere within reason with an electric vehicle. And I I like to go canoeing in the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, and there's even a charging station at the end of the Gunflint Trail now. So we'll start to see all sorts of destinations, even remote ones, have the capability for e-vehicle. And that has a huge impact on, on the really the carbon footprint of individual families. What kinds of problems for patients do you and other public health researchers see doctors needing to pay more attention to as the climate changes? Has anybody been following what's happening in California this week? First of all, it's it's on fire. Secondly, it is going through an incredible heat wave. Mm-hmm with record temperatures, 110 to 120 degrees sustained. Heat stroke, just imagine you have an outdoor job and you have to do that work under these kinds of conditions or firefighters. Farmers in Iowa face, you know, who work outdoors or people, farm workers who are picking crops manually. Those, so we can expect to see large increase in heat stroke and heat stress and I think medical providers are going to need to be asking patients about their occupation and about work outside and and advising them to stay hydrated and to seek cooling and to avoid working in the hottest parts of the day to avoid having them coming into our emergency departments. If they can even do that. I mean, you know, some of these some of these jobs that we're talking about are ones where the workers don't exactly have an a ton of autonomy where they can say, yeah, I'm just not going to, it's too hot, not going to work. So Um, that, that you raise a great point. And that's something we also think about quite a lot with regard to climate change is it isn't going to have its impacts on individuals equally. There's a huge social justice issue. In my world, we talk, we call that environmental justice or climate justice, but you know, to a large extent, the people who are most affected by flooding, hurricanes, heat stroke, and even susceptibility to climate-associated infectious diseases are largely people at the margins of the low, lower socioeconomic status. And when we look globally, it's people in poor countries who are more affected than those in rich countries. As somebody interested in or pursuing a career in psychiatry, I think there's definitely been a rise in the impact of you know, climate change and whatnot on like the mental health, you know, there's studies showing increases in aggression, irritability can impact sleep. But now I think there's even more recognition of the chronic kind of chronic low grade anxiety up to kind of high grade existential anxiety. I don't know if you have any like advice for future practitioners and how to counsel patients when things seem so out of individual control. I'm glad you raised that. That's a really a very important point. So I teach climate change here at the University of Iowa to undergraduates. I teach a course called Climageddon. 
And I also teach in, in Denmark via Zoom for a number of years I've been doing this. And especially in Denmark, and now I'm starting to see more in the U.S., climate anxiety being a, a problem that my students face. Students who say that they, they don't anticipate having a family, although that's something that they always aspired to because they're anxious about the future and they feel that it, it may not be um, the right thing to do to bring children into a world that is facing uh, these severe impacts of climate change. So I, we do talk about climate anxiety in, our, in the courses I teach and also talk about what sort of mental health resources are available to try and uh, put that out there as well. In addition to that, there's strong growing evidence that violence, pers interpersonal violence and social strife are increased, particularly in evening hours with hot and humid conditions. So there, there's, there's been a, a lot of study of this spanning a very long time. Coup d'etat, hooliganism in soccer stadiums, police reports, rape, violent armed attacks. All those are associated with higher temperature, particularly evening temperatures and higher humidity. So there's, there's growing evidence to support all these aspects of, of mental health and, and social strife. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. So what do you think we should or could be doing as future practitioners to help our future patients kind of navigate this climate again? I think that first educating yourselves about climate change and how, and how to live a life with a smaller carbon footprint so that you're walking the talk is always a good thing. I have a large solar array here in my backyard and I, 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 I'm a 24 7 365 commuter by bicycle. You know, these kinds of things make a difference, both in terms of, of setting an example for others and, and being a part of the solution. In addition, of course, voting and asking about candidates, asking candidates for office, their their policies and positions on climate change is, is an important thing that any citizen of, of voting age should be doing. Specifically re with regard to medical care practice, I think physicians and APPs are very influential with their patients and have should be prepared to raise these issues, talk about potential problems, and of course, be able to, to recognize when somebody has a disease, perhaps hasn't been endemic to our area in the case of infectious disease, but is now emerging because of climate change. So that could be things like chikungunya or, or, or lichiosis or you know vector-borne diseases, particularly mosquitoes and ticks, which might be moving to the areas. Also, we're seeing allergy season be greatly extended, and we anticipate that there'll be higher burdens of allergens, both in terms of new plants that are allergenic coming to our area, as well as higher levels of pollen over a longer period of time. So those who are seeing patients for, for allergy and asthma need to understand that there's a strong climate change component to that as well. I don't want to keep like dominating the conversation. I do have a question in trying not to be nihilistic, but in conversations with patients I've had in clinic, especially like younger people, the kind of like nihilistic approach of what I do doesn't matter. You know, I, using paper straws, like what impact does that have when the EPA have, you know, restrictions rolled back, you know, without consequence? How would you kind of address that like fear or nihilistic approach on an individual level? Yeah, so let me start at the backside of that. I'm on the Science Advisory Board for the EPA, and I've served on that. And I see that many there are many responsible companies and corporations that are doing the right thing now, regardless of, of the swings that we've seen in the last several presidential administrations with regard to EPA policies, because their shareholders want it, they recognize it's the right thing to do, and the future for a company's prosperity is in being responsible to the environment and, and to their customers. And we're starting to see large companies that have in the past referred to themselves as an oil company 
becoming an energy company, which includes renewables, or becoming a chemical company that includes plant-based chemical production. So we're seeing a shift there, and I think that's that's happening even apart from some of the political winds of change. And I think right now, a lot is happening in the government that we can be proud of. It reminds me of some news this week that I think it was, I think it's Texas passed laws that said, you know, you can't, you can't, I can't remember the exact, but you can't, you can't discriminate against fossil fuel companies. And, and so, you know, clearly targeting companies that are like, you know, we don't want to do business with companies that are, are wasteful. But then the response from corporate America has been like, yeah, okay, fine. We still don't want to do business. And I think they're recognizing that, you know, they, they can't continue to do business the old way. So this was Texas pushing back on the divestiture issue and, and basically saying that the large investment firms that, that have a policy of not engaging with the extractive industries would not be welcome in Texas. And, you know, and like you said, they said, okay, fine. We, we need, we, we're going to stick to our, our principles and do, do the right thing. And I think Largely, the investors and shareholders now support that. So maybe that's a sign that maybe that's a sign, Nathan, for patience that that you could point to, saying, you know, yeah, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but at the same time, the progress seems to be being made in a forward direction. Yeah, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about the nihilism question because one thing I, you know, when I teach a course to seventy undergraduates on climate change. It can become doom and gloom and a lot of doom scrolling, and that's the last thing I want to do. I want this to be empowering. I want I want knowledge to motivate them to be active, and and everybody has a role in this. Everybody can play an important part. We talk about fast fashion. That's another area where if you push back on fast fashion, not just in your own purchasing power, but with others, you can really make a difference. When you when you promote candidates for office who who have a re- understanding of climate change and have a plan to address it, that has a big impact. We can promote our institutions to do the right thing. Um, it takes everyone. It, it's sort of the same thing as, as thinking about voting. If everyone said, well, my vote doesn't count, then your vote doesn't count. But collectively, mm-hmm. you can make a difference. And it, that's really important to push back on that nihilism i like that that's like a really powerful metaphor i think that a lot of people can kind of understand and get by i'm gonna steal that or borrow it i'll give you credit you can have it (laughs) (laughs) one area that you and i talked about earlier when we spoke this week is problems faced by climate refugees yeah so so a classic example right now is Pakistan. Pakistan has a, had a huge heat wave that came with a, a particularly wet monsoon season. And let me just back up and say that a warmer climate, a warmer air holds more moisture. That's a, just a fundamental property of of air and water. And so when you have higher temperatures, you have more water vapor in the air. And when that comes out, you get very extreme rain events, much higher than we've seen before. And this year we've seen that in the U.S. and Kentucky with the flooding they had there. And and in Pakistan, we've seen that compounded with high temperatures melting glaciers in, in, in their mountain regions. So a third of Pakistan basically has been underwater this year. And that's displaced. They had, they had 400% higher rainfall and temperatures of 122 degrees. And in the face of this, they have a third of their place underwater. They have 45% of their crops that have been lost. And they have about 1.2 million people that are homeless. And where are all those folks going to go when a third of your country is underwater? Just think about the the challenges that that the government of Pakistan is facing to try and bring relief to these people. And so the international community has stepped in to help. But, but when it comes time where sea levels are rising even further and compounded with with these extreme rain events or more severe typhoons and hurricanes we're going to have a lot of displaced people and and where are they going to go and who's going to welcome those people and take care of those people this is the challenge we face globally 
Yeah. And and you talk about Pakistan, but I would note that we've had a couple of climate refugee type events in the United States. I mean, I'm thinking of Hurricane Katrina in particular, which, um, you know, I don't know if you can point to an individual hurricane as having been a result of climate change, but as things, but it was an example of a hurricane where people were displaced. They had to leave their, their, their home states and move to other states. And that I'm sure created a challenge for healthcare in those areas where they had new, you know, whole new patient populations. They had all kinds of um, illnesses associated with being a refugee. What kinds of illnesses are, do you, you know, do you see as being associated yeah. with refugees? Yeah. So, so there's three really important points there. One, one is, is, can you say that any one hurricane is because of climate change? No, but what we do know is that what makes the difference between a category one hurricane and a category five hurricane is the temperature of the water over which that's moving. So when a hurricane comes into the Gulf of Mexico as a cat one, category one, and it gains all this strength from the hot, unprecedented hot temperature of the Gulf of Mexico, and then it hits landfall as a Cat 5 hurricane like Katrina did. Well, it was Cat 5 just before it hit landfall, and then it was Cat 4. And then you get these devastating consequences. So we're seeing more hurricanes, and we're seeing more severe hurricanes that are definitely attributable to the, the increased temperature of the Gulf because of climate change. People are internally displaced. Many people from from New Orleans, ended up going to various places in Texas. Many of them stayed, which put a put a burden on that. But it also was a, a loss to the culture of, of South Louisiana and, and New Orleans, so that they lost this population. And the Lower Ninth Ward, in particular, was an area that was flooded for a considerable amount of time. And in New Orleans, we're seeing it, it's a delta, and it, so it's subsiding. It, the land level is going down. The barrier from the ocean is diminishing in terms of its ability to absorb the shock of, of tidal surges. And so it doesn't look good for the future there in terms of what we're going to see. We, we have a study going on right now of about 8.5 million veterans through the VA health system. And we're tracking what has happened to them at Katrina, Rita, Sandy, and now the wildfires west over time. We, we can see where they received care, where their home is, and then where they're receiving medications that are mailed to them and, and look for association of these extreme events with their health status in terms of cardiovascular health, mental health, and, and lung health. And so these kinds of studies we hope will, will allow us to say what is the cost, both in terms of human suffering, but also in terms of med- delivering medical care to people after these events. And as they become more severe, what do we forecast will be the impact? Because right now when we evaluate the cost of climate change, largely the health effects are treated as an externality. We don't even include the cost of health care by and large, to evaluating the cost of these events. And it's really crucial that we include include that component as we start to model what the future costs will be. I think we've like touched on so many different facets in very like superficial ways. I mean, we could go on and, and Dave, we kind of had this conversation earlier about, you know, just, you know, for example, we take one thing and this was mentioned previously, like glaciers melting and increased like water temps and how that is going to affect coastal citizens, which is, you know, primarily where people in the United States live. If we're just going to focus on the U.S., you know, how that's going to impact cities, as we kind of mentioned with New Orleans. I mean, that's going to force, you know, cause forced migration of people within the United States. You know, we've kind of touched on the idea of the increasing effects of like infectious diseases with like now new standing bodies of water and such. I I just think there's so many different facets to this that are going to impact all of us in different ways and throughout our careers. You know, as someone who wants to go into anesthesia, you know, I think about like, 
you know, there's only so much ability for the United States to manufacture things and we're already facing medicine shortages. And, you know, say we're trying to shift our goals as a, a nation, how we handle these pressures, whether they be environmental or they be social or they be whatever it, it is, you know, we're at a capacity. And so I think some things, you know, I can see being left behind or be undervalued and then that can cause issues as well. What are some of those things that you mean would be left behind? I think, you know, if we, we were to focus on, you know, certain things like manufacturing certain things, we focus on, I don't know, renewable energy. I think that's like going back to an original talking point and a thought that I had is all these things that we want to do, they require a lot of money and upfront intellectual investment and such. And so say we invest in that, other things I can see be left behind. And so we are focusing on environment, but then maybe healthcare gets left behind or we're focusing on you know whatever it is i think there's you know we're we're we have to respect that there's a capacity for both intellectual but also like productivity in like a physical realm if that so, makes sense yeah I, I you know you're you're raising a good point with regard to the sea level rise and coastal inundation so the strategy there for instance there will be a trade-off between either hardening the infrastructure or falling back and just abandoning certain tracts of land like Manhattan. If you just start to think about abandoning Manhattan or trying to shore up the infrastructure to protect it, either way you look at that, the, the amount of money associated with that kind of adaptation is, is gigantic. And when you amplify that to the whole Eastern seaboard, which is much of it will be below sea level, then where's that money gonna come from and, and what are we not going to spend money on that we otherwise would have as a society? Those are going to be tough decisions. And, and I think, you know, you're, you're right to wonder how that decision process will be made. And will we take care of the most vulnerable in our society when we do that? I think another important point is we talk about what's happening on the East Coast, but what's going to happen to us in the Midwest? You know, we have we're, you know, looking at our hospital, right? We're surge level four or five on a daily basis. You know, Iowa and, you know, the other Midwest states are the majority stakeholders in our production of food and agriculture in the United States. And now you, you know, you you cause a, a mass migration of people into this area that we use for farming. And again, it comes down to a capacity. What What is our capacity? Is it going to be holding people? Is it going to be producing things? And, you know, then we start talking about food shortages, water shortages. I know that's a very end goal or not end goal but you know end outcome that's very bad but it's something that has to be considered it's not just what's happening on the east but what's going to happen here where's where are people going to live who's going to get health care and then even among that education because education plays a very you know pivotal long-term role in how people's health you know what the outcome is going to look like and, and if i had to speculate i mean because I don't know exactly where these things are made but i know that a lot of medications are not made in the u.s they're made overseas and many of them are made in places like Indonesia, uh, Taiwan, other places. India. Some, India. Some of these places are vulnerable to the effects of climate change in, in the near term. And, you know, in that case, you know, sometimes medicines don't get made. Sometimes we have weird shortages of, of things like, you know, sodium bicarbonate. Ativan. Ad, I mean, like things that you take for granted in medicine or very simple medications like sodium bicarbonate is like among the simplest medicines that I can think of. And yet sometimes it's like not available. We ran out of a certain kind of tape and just like, you know, you're so used to doing one thing or an, versus another. There's a, a level of, you know, ability to adapt, but then there's also like kind of, should we really be adapting these processes or should we have done, had better foresight and better control of the situation in, in the beginning? Yeah. And, and I can tie that into climate change with an example that's contemporary. China right now has had in parts of the country has had a severe drought and, and heat wave such that their, their rivers have dried up and they use these for hydropower so they aren't getting hydropower but they're also shipping lanes so lots of goods that are manufactured in china are not able to be shipped so the supply chain that was already disrupted is even further disrupted and that's a direct impact of, of climate change so i the u.s is has been I mean, I think we've found in the last few years that we're vulnerable to supply chain disruptions and that we need to have more 
return to having more domestic production of essential goods and services, which would include medication. It sounds like it sounds like we're due for just a long period of of instability and difficulties and just trying to, you know, adapt and navigate. The last comment about Iowa, uh, one thing that's of interest is about 57% of the corn that's produced in Iowa goes to make ethanol for as a fuel additive for combustion engine vehicles. So we can imagine a time when we're no longer doing that, when we have really converted our e-vehicle, our fleet to e-vehicles. And so what about that? That's about 7 million acres of land that will be freed from having to produce corn. There are plant-based pharmaceuticals that, that we can make. We can make synthetic oil-type products that replace fossil fuel-based systems. We can also start producing something besides corn and soybeans, like like vegetables and, and you know, have more of a, a in, in Iowa production of of a diversity of crops that we have lost over time because of the nature of agriculture as it's evolved. So I think we'll see major shifts in agriculture within Iowa that will allow us to have, instead of buying food that has more frequent flyer miles than I do, we'll have food that's produced in our own state that is of high quality, diverse, picked fresh, delivered local and sourced locally. This is where voting counts. Vote for people who take climate change seriously, who would, can then subsidize some of these fruits and vegetables aside from corn. But Even well, on top of that, corn and soybeans. <laughs> on top of that, you know, I I went to a, a fast food restaurant yesterday, and I had a plant based meat, and I think that's an area as you talk about production from agriculture and 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 making food. You know, we in Iowa do love our cows and our pigs, but I think we have to come to terms with that those are like an economical and environmental like kind of disaster in terms of their production. They're very wasteful, and the the amount of food and water required to raise cattle and pigs and the space that's required could be better served creating other things other plants that you could maybe get plant-based meats from or you could the idea being that you could feed so many more people and take care of and and just have larger more prosperous outcomes if that you know area and those i'm blanking on the word investments were placed in other areas so in addition to that cattle produce methane through through both ends of their digestive system. And are, as a consequence, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so cattle and, and other ruminant animals are responsible for about 17% of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So the U.S. is one of the top consumers in terms of pounds of meat per year that we consume. So. All we have to do is is eat smaller portions of meat if we choose to eat meat. Many people who are climate conscious have been able to reduce their their consumption of meat or or shift to poultry, which is less of a greenhouse gas emitting source of protein. So there also is a lot of work going on to try and figure out are there ways to raise uh, livestock that such that they'll be less have less of a footprint on greenhouse gas emissions, and so those are all important areas that uh, we should explore. Maybe tricky conversations to have, especially in Iowa, with our patient. I'm, I'm uh, imagining trying to talk to some of our older patients and adjusting their dietary habits, but. You know their colons would be appreciative. I was going to say, you know, like, I will miss my hamburger, but maybe my colon will be happy. Yeah, Uh, that's why I don't advocate for everybody to become vegan or or vegetarian, but rather just think about the how often and how much meat you do have and whether that's really healthy or necessary or, or important to your diet and think about alternatives. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this really important topic, Professor. Thanks so much. Thank you. I imagine you can see that I'm rather passionate about this topic. And so anytime I have the opportunity to talk to folks and and maybe raise the level of the discussion in our society, I'm more than happy to do so. So really, thank you very much for having me today. You're so welcome. Shortcodes, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you.
Short Coats, we love to hear from you, no matter what it's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. Garrison did that recently. And as sometimes happened, his question taught me something I'd never heard bef- heard of before. Garrison, take it away. Hi, my name's Garrison Willoughby. I'm currently a paramedic of two years now, so I've been working in the field of emergency medicine, and I've been wanting to further my career to be a doctor and go to med school. I started back at college doing my chemistry degree, and I'm working at my associates currently. I'm from Ohio. Wright State Med School is one of our local med schools, and they allow people in with 90 credit hours of college experience. It doesn't have to be a bachelor's degree or anything of that nature. And as long as you meet the minimum requirements, you can apply. But my question is, is this really an accurate statement? Do you stand as a competitive student with others? And what the best route would be to go? I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. I had not heard of such a thing as a school that, as a medical school that admits people with 90 credit hours and and an associate's and potentially an associate's degree. I, I, of course, rushed down the hall to Amy Ahern, our admissions coordinator, and, and she said she wasn't familiar with schools that don't require a bachelor's degree to enter medical school, though she is aware of some schools that will admit you as a junior undergrad contingent on res- you receiving your bachelor's degree. You didn't mention if you were getting an associate's degree at Wright State, Garrison. Hopefully you've reached out to the admissions program at Wright State to, ed- to ask some questions about that. I looked them up and indeed their admissions requirement page mentions nothing about a bachelor's degree, just an MCAT and 90 credits. Yeah, to speak to kind of what Amy was mentioning, I know there are BS or BAMD, what Dave was talking about, where after at least two years of undergraduate studies, if you take an MCAT and meet satisfactory MCAT requirements and GPAs, that you can finish out your degree and earn both a bachelor's and medicine. Without knowing more about Wright State, I almost would advise against applying, at least at, if you don't have a bachelor's degree, if there's only like one program. So I'm thinking... It might be, and I don't want to just like come out and like fix the solution right away, but if you're planning on applying to multiple schools, that if you applied this cycle without completing a bachelor's, that you may only be able to apply to one school. Yeah, I was going to say, like a lot of students, you know, like we, we often on the show are like, you should, you know, when you're looking for a school, you should look for this and that and the other thing and blah, 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 blah. But the truth is, a lot of students who apply to med school only get into one. And so I would worry a little bit about putting all your eggs in one one basket. basket. If you didn't get in, then what? Of course, you can reapply. I mean, you know, like it's that's not the end of the road or anything, mm-hmm. but it's something that it's something to think about. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the concept of this, though. It yeah. reminds me of Europe. And 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 in some some places in Europe, almost everywhere in Europe, that doesn't require you just like not, start school at 18. Right. And you basically go from their equivalent of high school to you know medical school i I mean it makes sense to me i feel like when you're doing a bachelor's like yeah you're learning there's a lot of prerequisite courses that help with med school but there's also a lot of stuff you use that you don't need well i mean yeah i mean and and let's be clear that the a lot of that stuff is you know the sort of liberal arts education that has value it's just not directly applicable to medicine. And this is why I see, I think it's interesting, the concept of whatever is happening at Wright State, because, you know, you look at someone in his position who has a lot of experience, those prereqs, that fluff doesn't really, I don't think, hold as much value because you have working experience, you have real life experience, you have a patient care experience, you know, mm. you have all these things where it's like, okay, get to the basis of how I can I get to the point of practicing medicine yeah. with proficiency. And I think that's in the, in his case, a, a a beneficial thing. Yeah, perhaps Garrison doesn't really need all all that liberal arts education because he's been out there. He's you know it's seen, a viable seen the alternative world. to actually getting a bachelor's because it is unnecessary. Like I feel like it is unnecessary to go back yeah. to college and. I, I feel like his, I feel like Garrison's you know absent other considerations, Garrison's background would probably lend itself well to getting into medical school. But I'm I'm. That, you know, I'm I'm used to saying that you sh- that you need to show some rigor in your undergrad studies, and right or wrong, schools are some schools are biased against say things like community college or associate's degree or things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. As I said, I'm not sure you're getting your associate's degree at Wright's at Wright State, but Wright State does have a chemistry associate's degree, so let's let's assume 
that. And so I suppose they may be just as happy to take Wright State associate degree students into MD school because they trust the associate's degree curriculum to a greater extent than they would say at, you know, community college in some other part of the country or something like that. So I guess if if Wright State is the only school that you would ever seriously consider applying to or attending, I think you could go ahead and I actually think it's I actually think it's kind of low risk this idea for for Garrison anyway, because it will of course probably cost money to apply. Mm -hmm. And so there's there is a financial risk there that you would apply and not get in and then maybe have to apply again and you have to spend that money and I, there is a, garrison's a working guy though so maybe it's tra- not and traditionally there may be a bias as a re you know it may be in air quotes more difficult as a reapplicant. and i think something else i would caution to is are you able to study adequately for the mcat if you're trying to finish all of your prerequisite course you know if you're taking an, an entire semester of biochemistry, organic chemistry, physics, and upper-level biology, can you also adequately, and you're working as a paramedic, can you adequately study for the MCAT and get all of your application materials in at the end of, I guess, you know, only you can answer that question, Garrison. I am just, I guess, a little more cautious about applying without the requirements at other schools. I think the other thing I was thinking about is that to the extent to which Garrison is competing with applicants who do have bachelor's degree at right bachelor's degrees at Wright State, you might be at a disadvantage. I don't know how to evaluate that. Um, I mean, I wonder if they have kind of like a preferential application process. I mean, much how much to the point like how Iowa, you know, preferentially will take their residents. Yeah. I wonder if that maybe in that same sense they might take people who are you know have a lot of working experience, are non traditional students, and are trying to uh, make a composite class that looks more like that. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm speaking out of my ass right now. So, just as that's we- what we do. Just as we have our wonderful Amy Ahern in admissions, I would also recommend you talk to the admissions team at Wright State to see if other students have done what you are trying to do and what they what they recommend because they're that admissions team would know best. Yeah, and I yeah I totally agree, and that was Amy's first thought as well. You know, I'd reach out, tell your story, ask your questions. One thing I would think is important to ask is what's the class profile look like. Um, they should be able to tell you how many people have BAs, how many people have associate's degrees, how many people, you know, have have MAs and, and and all that kind of stuff. Where do those people come from? Do they come from Wright State? Do they come from, you know, you know, other places? These are all, I feel like these are all kind of important questions for you to ask if you really want to feel comfortable with your with your chances. I'm and you know, also remember that Applying to med school, as we always say on the show, is a numbers game. You know, there are more people who want to who apply than who can possibly get in, like many times more. So, you know, even if you don't get in on your first try, you may have. I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of us, I always identify too closely with you guys. I think I think a lot of you, I think a lot of you med students have applied more than once. Also, the idea of being a reapplicant. To my understanding, and feel free to correct me, I mean, he's only going to be a reapplicant at that school if he were to not get in versus because you're not a reapplicant anywhere else. So no one else is going to know unless you disclose it. So and to the point, I don't know if, which one said it, which one of you. It's it's a low risk. It's it's low risk. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with doing it. Take them at their word, but ask questions. Yeah, I think that's what yeah. we're saying. It sounds like you're doing well as a paramedic now. It's something uh, maybe another factor to consider is if you've gone three-fourths of the way to a bachelor's is that extra year worth that as a potential. Not saying that things aren't going to work out because I am hopeful that things will. But, you know, if that extra year to earn a bachelor's could open up like other like potential opportunities if that's a good point, I mean, don't work out. Like if you've gone that far is spending the extra year to secure that degree worth it or not i guess that's you know kind of up to you but maybe a factor to consider 
A thought that crossed my mind is, is why not PA school as well? I mean, that is also an option and you'll be an advanced practice provider. Your situation lends itself to applying to PA school really well. The requirements are less. I think, you know, it, it satisfies the non-traditional applicant a little bit You better. probably have all of the patient, patient care yeah. slash shadowing experiences that they want you to have, which is a lot more than, in general, a lot more than you need to get into med school. Yeah. And I, I mean, just in like the, the speculation we're doing thus far, I mean, I would say that something that hasn't been mentioned, and I think just, I think just put that idea out there and, and, and take it at as is. I don't know. We love our PA friends. That was the first question I got. So I signed up for as a pre-medical student here at the University of Iowa. They have like medical school mentors to mentor undergraduate students. And I like come in as a sophomore and like sit down. Hi, my name's Nathan. And like the first question the medical student asked me was, have you considered becoming a PA? So we will pose the same. Have you considered doing anything else? (laughs) So we will just pose that question. Great job. I mean, I'm thinking of like my PA classmates who I started in medical school with and it's like, damn, they're graduating in December and are going to start making money like, shoot. All right. That's kind of jealous. Not going to lie. Listen again to last week's episode on the opportunity costs mm-hmm. of, of medicine. If you can start making some serious dose, potentially six to seven years earlier that will compound and see at least one of the co-hosts listens to the show (laughs) that's your sign everybody here's your sign i appreciate that nathan of course anything else we want to tell garrison good luck yeah let us know how it goes i'd love to hear more about this program i appreciate um, the question because it's very unique it's unlike any other question i think we've had at least in my time yeah that's our show chirayu nathan rick zach Thanks for being on the show with me today. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Such fun. And what kind of 2.5 micron particulate matter would I be? A hydrocarbon. If I didn't thank you, Short Quotes, for making... Oh, that was a stretch. If I didn't thank you, Short Quotes, for making us part of your week, if you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube. We're, we're everywhere. Spotify. Spotify. Yeah, thank you to this week's producers, uh, me, and to this week's editor, Zay Edgren and Katie Hyam Kessler. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, Student Government, and ongoing support from the Writing in the Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler t- saying, don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.